Let's stand for reading of God's word. Genesis 1, 29-31 And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Psalm 73, verse 22 to 28. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Romans 8, 28 to 32. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This, this is God's, God's words. Rise and fall on whether or not we trust in God's goodness. Whether or not we believe that God is good. If we doubt God's goodness, we will waver in our faith, maybe even deny him. One of the better known biblical scholars left Christianity because he could not believe there was a God because he looked around the world saw all the suffering and evil, and therefore concluded there can't be a good God, therefore there isn't a God at all. So he has been challenging Christianity ever since. One of the biggest questions asked is, how can a good and loving God allow the suffering and evil we see around us? 
For many, it's a rhetorical question. And their answer is, there can't be a good God. There isn't a God. When you leave the goodness of God, your faith will falter. You may even deny him. On the other hand, there are those who endure all sorts of suffering and pain, and yet they cling to the goodness of God. And it transforms their lives so that despite what's happening around them, they live above the circumstances with hope and peace and joy. Where are you this morning? Are you grounded in the goodness of God? Or do you waver, wondering, is he good as you look around the and see what's happening in our world? Let's pray. Our Father, meet us today. Meet each one of us precisely where we are. Bring us to the foot of the cross during this message. Bring us to see your goodness so that we might be grounded, that we might not waver, that we might find our fullness in you and need turn nowhere else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Earlier in the service, we just we cited the New City Catechism about God's creation and about the fact that his creation was good. It was very good. And that's what the first man and woman experienced, God's goodness. But quickly, a serpent came and tempted them, precisely challenging God's goodness. And they fell for it. And we face the same temptations today to question God's goodness. Will we fall for it? What will our response be? What is the remedy that will keep us grounded in the goodness of God? So what we're going to do today is look at first the goodness of God. And secondly, Satan's attack on the goodness of God. And thirdly, our response or our, the remedy that we find, the secure base to which we turn so that we are, stay grounded on the goodness of God. So the Bible opens with the creation of the world and it lays out six days of creation and woven throughout those six days is the comment that it was good or God saw that it was good. Then the creation culminates in verse 31, and it says, And God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. Creation was very good because the Creator is very good. The creation flows from the very nature of the Creator. As I said a couple weeks ago, I look at a Picasso painting. I'm only going to understand it when I begin to understand Picasso because his paintings flow from his very nature, from who he is, his perspective, his values, his life experiences. And so he creates out of that. And so our God created out of whom he is. And he is good. And he was very good to all of creation, especially to the first man and woman. He placed them in a virtual paradise. They had anything they could ever want. They could eat of any tree in the garden. 
And we know those trees weren't all just fruit trees, for the very tree of life was in the garden being offered to them. And there was only one tree that was being kept from them. And that's because if they ate of that tree, it would lead to disaster in their lives and for everyone else. And so God, in his goodness, had created them in his very image for their purpose to, to be conformed to that image, to have an experience. Uh, and show forth the, the very character of God himself. And there was glory as they reflected the glory of God. He made them CEOs of the world. And he gave himself to them as he walked with them. And there was no disease, no death, no pain, no tragedies, no catastrophe. That's the world God created. It was very good because he was very good. And even when humanity rebelled against God and sin entered the world and it broke everything in our world and broke our lives, God's goodness still reigned. He was always there for us, trying to draw us back to himself. He gave us the blueprint of life itself. And through his commands, we knew and learned how to navigate life as it should be lived. He was patient with us. He endured. He chose a people that might show him forth to the world. And even when they failed, he offered forgiveness. And he offers us forgiveness because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in him, we begin to experience the goodness of God to the fullest as we receive forgiveness and we are given the spirit of God to empower us to live the way we should live, to create in our own hearts a union with God where we cry out, Abba, Father, and fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. God is good in original creation and in his recreation. And ultimately, he will fix everything in this broken world when he returns. He is good. And the goodness of God needs to be central and is central to our lives because we are created with self-interest. We were born feeling that love for ourselves and wanting the best for ourselves. There is nothing wrong with self-interest. In fact, if we didn't have self-interest, the goodness of God wouldn't matter. If I didn't care what happens to me, then when something good happens, I just go, yeah, so what? When God pours out his goodness, I go, big deal. In fact, even the cross, and I look to that and someone says, that saves me from the eternal judgment of God. And I'd say, well, I don't care if I'm eternally judged or not, right? Even Jesus had self-interest. When he was confronted with the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if there's any other way, can you take this cup from me? But not my will, thy will be done. Self-interest is not wrong. Self-absorption is. Selfishness. Selfishness is. Self-centeredness is. 
But we can have self-interest and still be self-sacrificial like Jesus was. He was able to be self-sacrificial because he knew the love of God. He knew God's desire to glorify him. He found his fullness in the Father. And when he was full, he could live for others. We see this in the scene in the upper room in John chapter 13 where Jesus performs one of the ultimate acts of servanthood. His disciples are gathered with him and he rises from the table, he takes off his garments, he girds himself with a towel and then he bends down in front of the dirty feet of each disciple and washes them. And when he gets up, he says, that's what you should be doing for one another. But notice how the chapter begins. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, then he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking the towel, tied it around his waist, and went to work. You see, he was able to do that because he was filled by the Father. He knew his identity. He knew who he was. He knew the Father's love. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going back to. He was secure in the Father. He had all the fullness of the Father in him. And when he was full, he didn't need to look out for himself in any way. He served us. And that's the same for all of us. Imagine I have a pitcher of water and two, two individuals come forward and I give them each a glass of water and the first one drinks that glass of water and the second one takes that glass of water, turns around, looks and finds someone who is thirsty and brings it to him. And so he said, well, what, what, what made the difference? Well, the first one was very, very thirsty and so he had to first satisfy his thirst the second one had already drank a lot of water before I gave it to him. He was filled. He was satisfied. And so he turned to look around and found whom he could serve. You know, I've shared this illustration a few times, but uh, Warren Buffett just gave another uh, $2.7 billion away to charity. He has now given away $37 billion dollars. You might think that's a lot of money he gave. I mean, it might be a little more than you gave. Uh, you'll find at the annual meeting, we didn't even get that much money from all of you this year. But when asked about it, he says, I'm not giving anything away compared to what other people give away. Because what I give away does not affect the way I live my lifestyle or my children's lifestyle or grandchildren's lifestyle in any way. Because it doesn't, I can give it away. Because he has so much. Because he has already filled. He gives it away. When we are filled, and we can be filled, because God is good and wants to fill us, then we move out as God wants us to, in serving others. Adam and Eve had all the goodness of God before them. 
They had everything they needed for their satisfaction and fullness. And yet they turned from God. And so we see in the garden Satan's attack. He knew that if he could get that first couple to doubt the goodness of God, he could get them to turn from God. And so his plan is to begin to get them to focus away from the goodness of God and what God has provided and to begin to look at what God did not provide. So it opens Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And so he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not tree of, eat of any tree in the garden? It could also be translated, He hasn't given you every tree in the garden. And so her gaze is away from what God has provided to, has he actually given us every tree in the garden? And she said, well, we can eat, uh, we can eat of all the trees except the one in the middle of the garden. It's a, For God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So God's given us every tree except the one there, and if we eat that, we're going to die. And Satan says, you're not going to die. You don't need to follow God because you're afraid. Don't fall for that, I'm going to get you trick if you don't follow me. You're not going to die. In fact, the tree God is keeping from you, it says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying, yeah, God's given you a lot, but he hasn't given you the best tree. Because the best tree is that tree he's keeping you from. And if you eat of that, you will be like God. You will be able to fill yourself. You can satisfy yourself independent of God himself. You can have the glory of God by being like him. And she fell for it. And Adam Likewise, Satan uses the same tactic on us. When he gets us to look at what we don't have that we really wish we could have. And we forget to look at all that God offers us to fulfill us. And we begin to turn away from him towards those things we think will fill us. Let's go back to the illustration. There's a third person who comes up. And I offer to pour water into his cup. And he says, no, 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 I don't need your water. I'll satisfy my own thirst. And so he goes out and he finds somebody who has a can of soda. And now, to satisfy his thirst, either he's going to go over and fight that person for the soda, or he's going to walk away from trying to find his own soda frustrated that's what happens when we don't allow the goodness of God to fill our lives we look to other things to satisfy and those things often lead to sin and sometimes they are even good things but our obsession with them makes them an idol in our lives James 4.1 says this what causes quarrels and what 
causes fights among you. Is it not this? The passions that wage war within you. You desire and you don't have. And so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And see what he's saying here is we have these inner desires that we want fulfilled. And I believe those core inner desires are love, significance, security. And when we, we don't have those, we need these holes filled in our lives. And so we try to get them outside of ourselves. And sometimes we'll end up fighting others. We need to step on them so we can get ahead. We need to brag about ourselves so others are, see our significance. We may become addicts to find joy. We may turn to our bank accounts or sell our souls to our jobs because we need security. Now, it's interesting, as James 4 continues, he says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And what he's saying there is, don't you realize I'm here to fulfill you. I'm the lover who's going to fulfill you. But you are turning to other lovers. You've turned to the world and you become their friend thinking you'll find fulfillment in them, the things that the world offers. And so, you have abandoned me, the one who loves you so much. All of this changes when we rest in the goodness of God. We don't have to fight others. We don't have to walk away unsatisfied. We don't have to seek the sodas of life because we have God's fullness. So Satan is going to tempt us in the same way. Get us to look at everything around us and forget what God is providing and turning to him for the provision. So what's the remedy? What should our response be? Well, there's two features to combat Satan's attack. The first is redefine goodness. And second, turn to the cross for fullness and his goodness. So, Change, we need to change our definition of what is good. We see that happening in Psalm 73. Asaph, who wrote the psalm, opens it saying this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. What's he saying here is, intellectually, I know, you know, I've been to theology class, and I know that God's good to Israel, and he's good to all those who are pure in heart and walk with him, but experientially I am struggling with it, and I have almost slipped and fallen like Adam and Eve did. Why? He continues in the psalm. I look around, and I see the bad guys are winning, and the good guys are losing. I look, and I see people who step on others, evil people, and they're prospering. They're getting, they, their businesses are flourishing. They have all the prestige. They're the ones, they're the, they have all the power. 
They even mock God and say, look it, how can there be a God if I'm succeeding? And then he looked at himself, a man very faithful and committed to God. And he saw he had no, no material blessings at all. Hardship came into his life. And so he began to doubt God's goodness. And then he went into the sanctuary of God. And at the sanctuary of God, his idea of goodness was transformed. He gained an eternal perspective, a spiritual perspective, so that when he continues in verse 22, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's referring to when he had those doubts and when he's saying like, actually, my perspective about what was good was like an animal. The animals, they, they just want it. Give it to me here, now I need satisfaction right now. And he says, that's how I was judging what was good or evil. And I was missing what you were doing, God. I was missing the care and provision. I was missing the fact that in the long run, I'm going to win and they're going to lose. For I'm going to be received in glory with you. And then we see his redefinition of good in, uh, toward the end of the psalm where he says, but as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You see what's happening? What's his definition of good? Goodness is God himself. It's the relationship with God because there he finds what his ultimate security in life that's where he finds his fullness in life. And what does that do? That turns him outwards. That I might tell all about your works. You know, Romans 8, 28 through 31, expound and expand our understanding of what is good. Many of us know the verse, God causes all things. And we know that for those who God who love God, all things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. And for the longest time, I read that verse to say, wow, no matter what happens, it may look bad now, but it's going to turn out good for me. I, either I'm going to get what I've wanted eventually, or I'm actually going to get something better than I wanted because God works all things together for me. Because, of course, I'm the center of the universe. And God's going to work his cosmic plan around what I want. And I, actually, that's the way I was interpreting it. And I heard others interpret it that way until I heard a speaker in chapel. And he said, God's going to work all things together for his good. And for Christians, our good should be the same as God's good. And if God's working it for his good and our good is the same as his, then it's working for our good. Notice, this promise isn't for everybody in the world. It's for those connected to God and his goodness, those who love God, those called according to his purpose. And then it continues by giving us a picture of good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, that's what is the ultimate good. 
is God working in our lives to make us the people we were always meant to be, reflecting the image of God, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, something that will happen when he returns and something that is happening to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, aligned with his purposes right now. And so instead of saying, I need everything to go good in my life, I'm saying, Lord, no matter what you bring into my life, may it be developing me and my character so I become more like Christ. Paul had that attitude in Romans 3, 5, 3 and 4. He says, we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And that hope's not going to disappoint because the Spirit of God pours God's love into our hearts. When we change the definition of good, we line up with God and His purposes and that's where we find fulfillment in the way we live out our lives. We need to redefine good. And we need to turn to the cross. The cross is the fountain of life. And it's the ultimate display of his goodness. Remember I talked about the three holes in our lives? Love, significance, security. How do we know how much God loves us? God demonstrates his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is there a love greater than that? To be loved by the Father so much that he gave his own son's life for us. To be loved so much by Jesus Christ, he would endure all sorts of torture for us. That's love. Let that fill our hearts. Significance? How valuable am I? Well, what's God willing to pay for me? Not gold, silver, or precious stones, but the very life of his son. There's nothing more valuable in the universe, nothing to compare with value than the life of the son of Jesus Christ. And God says, you are so valuable to me, I purchase you with his life. And security, well, one, no matter what happens to us because of the cross, we are going to live with God forever in his paradise. But even now, we can trust God. We read in uh, verse 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things. What he's saying is, he's given you the ultimate gift. He's poured out everything for you. So now is he going to withhold little things from you? We can trust God is good. We can trust he is going to provide what we need in life because of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's many times in our lives when we could doubt God's goodness. 
I've had many times in my life. When I was one years old, my mother died. My brother was killed in a motorcycle accident on his 22nd birthday, two years after he came to Christ. My father died two years later, just after I graduated college, three months after I became a Christian. I never had the time to articulate the gospel to him. I've been by the bedsides of young mothers dying of cancer. There was an 18-year-old boy who drowned on one of our church retreats when I was at another church. Look around the world right now with pandemics, the hate within our country, the terrorism, and I can look at all these things and doubt God's goodness, but there's one place I go where I can never, ever doubt the goodness of God, and that's at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because I see there that he took all the suffering, all the evil of this world, and put it on his shoulders and bore it so that he could cry out, had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of us, because of our evil. When we ask the question, why does God allow such suffering and evil if he's so loving and good? All I'd say is, he is more concerned about the suffering and evil in our world than we are because he did something about it. He gave the life of his son. He is broken hearted over this world, but he's allowed it to take place for a season so that we might turn to the cross, the solution to all. After the Jewish people were freed from from slavery to Egypt. They passed through the, the Red Sea. They received manna from heaven and water from the rock. And then God brought them to the edge of the promised land. And they said, well, well, let's check it out first. And they sent 12 spies into the promised land. And they came back and they said, the land's good. It's exactly what God promised. In fact, it's better than, it, than the promises we heard. It's a good land. Of course it is. God's good. But they said, 10 of them said, but we're not going up because the enemy is so big. The cities are so well fortified. They are so armed and trained and they are big. If we go up, we'll die. Deuteronomy 1.27 says, and you murmured in your tents, and you said, because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Notice what they're doing? They're looking at the circumstances, and they're saying, we can't win this battle. God's given us into the hands of the Amorites, and therefore they draw a conclusion about God. He hates us. But Moses was there. And he says in verse 30, The Lord your God who goes before you will fight for himself, for you, just as he did in Egypt and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came here to this place. And what he's saying is, I look at God and his goodness. I look at how he already delivered us I look at us and he carried us as a son. He's always been there with us. That's the God we have. And if he is good, I'm going to draw conclusions about the circumstances. We're going to win. 
Two kinds of people, those who look at circumstances draw conclusions about God, those who look at God's goodness and draw conclusions about the circumstances. We look at the cross. That's where we see God's goodness. And we draw conclusions about the circumstances. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Our Father, ground us in your goodness. Keep these words before us. And if we're struggling, may we be in Asaph. And I pray that maybe this morning this was a sanctuary of God that we came into where we redefine good and we find our ultimate security, significance, and love in you so that we need not to search for it in the world. We need not fight anybody else for it. Lord, fill us with yourself, with your spirit, and ultimately with the fruit of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.